0: family one of the leaders and it is a joy isn't it to be together today I was so moved with that song I will exalt like man like I just want my life to exalt Christ and I was uh, I was moved to tears actually this morning so I'm thankful for the Spirit's work uh, as he meets all of us where we are and he continues to point us towards Christ so my prayer this morning is that I would exalt much of him and less of me With that, why don't we take a moment uh, to be quiet, to be still, and this might be an opportunity for you to quiet yourself and just say, hey Jesus, I'm here, I want to learn, I want my heart to be receptive, Uh, this can be an emotional check-in, how you're feeling, invite Jesus to meet you, and then we'll continue with our study this morning. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are with us, that you are alive. And I pray that this morning that I would make much of you and that you would be made much of in our lives. May we be receptive to what you want to say to us today. May we consider who you are and that if you are who you say you are, that that leads to a life life changed. So I pray that would be the case. If there's anyone here, Jesus, that does not know you as their Lord and as their Savior, as their King, as their friend, that they would make that decision today. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, you do not need to know me for very long before you will find out that I love to talk about things that I enjoy. Um, Now, it's actually part of my job, right? I get to speak on Sunday mornings and you'll oftentimes hear about things that I enjoy. Uh, You'll oftentimes hear stories, statistics, documentaries, Um, television shows, all of these sorts of things, books, Uh, some of you, you know this about me, that I love to talk about the things that I enjoy. Now, I do recognize and I have been told that there is a bit of a a detriment to myself and to potentially in a relationship that I'm building with you because of that, okay? So I just need you to know I am self-aware of this, is that when I get excited about something, um, I care little about what you think is as exciting, Right? Have you ever been in that situation where you were like, this is awesome, and someone else was like, well, I also know something that's awesome. And you're like, it doesn't matter because what I think is awesome is better than what you think is awesome. So I totally understand. That is a self awareness thing that I am working on. Now, in my defense, okay, in my defense, I would say that all of us endorse in a variety of ways the things that we find meaningful, enjoyable, and impactful. All of us, in a variety of ways, endorse what we believe is meaningful, enjoyable, and impactful. And many of us do this, as the statement claims, in a variety of ways. So for some of us, it's we love to tell right? We're, we're sharers. We love to tell other people about the things that we love and enjoy. For some of us, it's the clothes that we wear. We want to endorse a certain brand or something like that. For some of us, it might be through our social media. Uh, whatever it is, many of us find things that we love, that we find meaningful, impactful, and we want to endorse those things to the people that are around us. Now, naturally, uh, the question, if you are a follower of Jesus, is, well, does that also... Um, affect my relationship with Jesus Christ? If I believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ is meaningful, impactful, and enjoyable, would I not want to endorse him to other people? I mean, it's a natural question to ask ourselves. We've used the language in the past to say we all talk about the things or the people that we love. So if we truly are loving Jesus and understanding the change and the life that he wants to offer us, will we not then talk about him To other people. Now, some of us know the term evangelism. Can everyone say evangelism? evangelism, and evangelism is sharing and telling other people, essentially, about Jesus. My grandfather was a brethren uh, minister and preacher, and some of you have heard me quote him before, but I remember listening, uh, there's a group of messages, I can go back and actually listen that my grandfather gave, he's no longer alive, um, and he defined evangelism, there was in this way, he said, evangelism is taking one beggar, or telling, sharing with one beggar where another beggar can find his bread. Evangelism is telling one beggar, another beggar, where to find his bread. And that's how he defined evangelism. Now, when it comes to endorsing and sharing Jesus with other people, I think many of us are like, no thanks. (laughs) And quite honestly, I think there's a few reasons for that. There's a few barriers. And the first barrier is just straight up, it's spiritual opposition. Spiritual opposition. If there is a spiritual world and there is good and there is evil, there is God and there is Satan, then Satan surely does not want you telling somebody else about Jesus. If there's power in the name of Jesus, if we want to exalt Jesus, then Satan certainly does not want you sharing Jesus with somebody else. He wants to make much of himself. He doesn't want you to make much of Jesus or tell other people about Jesus. So there's straight-up spiritual opposition. Satan does not want you to tell other people about Jesus. But there's also cultural opposition, It makes much sense for many of us to understand that our culture is moving away from objectivity to subjectivity. That whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. There's no absolute truth. There's no objective view of reality. Culture is moving more away from authority to autonomy. Individual, the the glorification of the individual self. And we're also moving away from evidence to experience. So put your evidence out the door. This, what matters most is my experience. And so as a result, there is general cultural opposition. So much so, that statistics are telling us this uh, on the screen. Many historic Christian beliefs and practices are considered to be extreme by large portions of Americans. This is Americans, but I would say it's certainly the case in Canada, especially among non-Christians. For example, two out of five adults believe it is extremist to try to convert others to their faith. 60% of all adults in America and 83% of atheists and agnostics believe evangelism, one of the central actions of Christian conviction, is extremist. Now, this isn't just for those who are outside the church or who identify as atheists and agnostics, it's also an extremist position for 10% of people who identify as evangelical and extremists to 29% of those who identify as practicing Christians. So, notice how people identify themselves. They see the difference between what an evangelical is and what a practicing Christian is. And if you add those two things together, that's 39% of evangelicals or practicing Christians believe it's extremist to try to convert somebody else to their faith position. Which means 39% of us in this room are like evangelism, it's old school, it's extremist. We don't do it. So, there's cultural opposition. But then there is personal opposition as well. For many of us, we, we face the fear of being rejection. We face the fear of our reputation. We don't want to lose a relationship. Many of us just simply don't know what to do. And as a result, we just don't do anything at all. Justin Bieber recently said this in an interview with Zane Lowe for Apple Music. He said this, I never want to be someone that's trying to persuade anyone to believe in what I believe. God persuades people. I think God persuades people. But I definitely want to tell my story so that if that resonates to anybody, that they can hopefully learn from it. And this might be your view of evangelism. Well, I don't want to persuade anybody. God will persuade people. I don't want to persuade anybody. I'll just tell my story, if you even get there. So I think for many of us, if we're honest, okay, evangelism is uncomfortable. We don't know how to share Jesus with other people, and so many of us simply do not. And this morning, I want to explore in the text as we go through how people share Jesus with others, and what we can learn from it. And that's the crux of the text this morning. And in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our opposite, the opposition that we are facing towards the Christian faith position, how do we share Jesus? And what does that look like? What should be our way forward if we are followers of Jesus? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I also invite you along for this journey to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, to discover more of who he is. So with that, let's go to John 1, verse thirty. Five John 1, verse 35. As Maya mentioned, we have ESV scripture journals. We are going through the Gospel of John. We're going to be in it for most of the year. And so we've bought these ESV scripture journals uh, to be an accompaniment to the series. And so they can be bought at the welcome wall when you leave, or you maybe have your own way of taking notes, and that's totally fine. Or you're not taking notes, and that's also totally fine. Do your thing. Uh, but we are in John, and, we are going to, and just actually today, we're finishing up chapter 1. You're like, whoa, three weeks later, yes, we're just closing up chapter 1. So here we are John 1 verse 35 The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, if you were not here last week, Spencer spoke about and introduced us to John the Baptist. And so in verse 35, we are being told that the storyline is continuing. We're being introduced yet again to John the Baptist. And we read here that he is standing with two of his disciples. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know the word disciples. And you're thinking, didn't Jesus just have disciples? Why does John the Baptist have disciples? Great question. Uh, At the time, there were teachers and rabbis. And what a disciple was was An apprentice, a follower, or a learner. So many teachers and rabbis had disciples. So it's not uncommon here to read that John the Baptist himself had disciples. John the Baptist himself had people that followed him and were considered his disciples. So we read here that John is standing with two of his disciples. Now, some commentators and scholars say John has returned to a place that he was the day before, potentially anticipating what we're about to read. Okay, so what happens next? Why would he come back and stand in this particular place? And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So what many believe John here is doing then is he's gone back to the place that he knows Jesus will be. And so when Jesus comes back and walks by, he says to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you want to know more about the language of Lamb of God, you can go back to Spencer's message last week and listen to it. But he's speaking to their culture. He's identifying Jesus as a particular person. He's identifying him as the Lamb of God. And what he's saying is, that is the Lamb of God. I am not the Lamb of God. That is the Lamb of God. Now, if there's any confusion as to what John's desire was as this happens and why he points him out, we actually see it in the next verse. Look what happens. Verse 37, the two disciples, which two disciples? John the Baptist, two disciples, heard him say this. And what do they do? They follow Jesus. What's his purpose in saying, look, the Lamb of God? What's his purpose in returning to the place where he knows he will likely see Jesus? He wants his disciples to no longer be his disciples. He wants his disciples to be the disciples of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, this tells us something between the lines of the sort of environment that John the Baptist has created. One, it tells us that his disciples trust him, that he's likely created an environment of love, so that when he advises them in a particular direction, they're going to listen to him, right? Oh, he's identifying this man not only as Jesus, but I'm going to trust him that he brought me here, and I've trusted him as my teacher, so that when we see Jesus, that I should then go and follow him. So he's clearly created a relationship of trust and love. He's also, as Spencer touched on last week, he has very clearly understood who he is and his limitations, but then who Jesus is, and Jesus' lack of limitations in many ways, right? He's saying, yes, I have discipled you, if we're using that language, to this point, you've been my disciples, but now there is another that you must go and learn from. I have taught you things, but now there is another one that you need to graduate from me, and you need to now go to the school of Jesus. So there he is. And then thirdly, what does he do? He introduces and points people to Jesus. All right? See the three things? Creates an environment of trust, he has humility and a self-awareness, and then he introduces to Jesus. Now, my suggestion today for all of us is this is the exact same way we ought to consider our relationships with people that do not know and love and follow Jesus. This is the way that you do it. We do it the same way John the Baptist did it. Number one, we build relationships that are based on love and trust. We love people exceptionally well. We, we, we build relationships to the point that they trust us. People might even then be sharing with us things about the intimate parts of their life. Now, some of us in this room, we have those relationships. We're like, oh, we've got, you know, there's Bill, there's Sarah, there's Dude, to do, to do, and you're like, wow, I've got a lot of great relationships. Some of us, though, we have none. This is where. The challenge comes to some of us and not to others on this specific point. We're to build relationships with people that don't know and love Jesus. And we build those relationships, and the basis of those relationships is love and trust. But then secondly, as we build those relationships, there's a level of humility and self-awareness. And I think this is where many of us fumble who have the relationships with people that don't know and love Jesus. And this is where things get stopped. We don't even get to the third, which is to actually introduce people to Jesus, is that we're not humble enough and we're not self-aware enough. Now, maybe you're like, well, what do you mean? Number one, I think one of the problems is that we think too highly of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. Now, you're saying, well, what do you mean? What I mean by that we think too highly of ourselves is that we functionally believe that we can solve the problems of those people around us. We functionally believe that, that if I just have a really good relationship with them, I can be their counselor, I can be their advocate, I can be their redeemer and savior. So we think too highly of ourselves. Some of us might be, we say, well, okay, the, the basis for the people that I work with, they know I'm a Christian, so that is enough. So we believe that them knowing we're a Christian and that our Christian witness is enough to win them to Jesus. But notice, if I go back to the statistics that I said, even how people who identify as evangelical or practicing Christians is different, and you think about what culture now thinks and believes about Christians in general, it's probably not good enough for them to know that you're a Christian. Like, you have to get beyond that, or maybe you're saying, they know that I believe in God. But friends, others from other religious positions also believe in God. Or maybe it's, well, they know that I attended church on Sunday, so that should be enough. Then they'll begin asking me spiritual questions, maybe, but very unlikely. And so we think too highly of ourselves at times in our own witness, but then secondly, we, we think too little of Jesus. We don't believe that Jesus will be able to handle the questions and doubts of our friends. Or we believe that Jesus' gospel there's too much opposition in our culture to Jesus' gospel. So I need to give them my own version of the gospel which is also getting back into thinking that we, we're, 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 like, we think too highly of ourselves of our gospel that doesn't kind of conflict with their lives is a better gospel than Jesus' gospel so we never get to Jesus' gospel because they're like, well, they can't handle Jesus and his gospel because it's too intense. So we think too highly of ourselves and we think too little of Jesus which then prevents us from getting to the third place which is simply to invite people to Jesus. To point people to him. I heard this illustration, so it's not my own. Uh, it's like being at a wedding and dressing up in white, is what many of us are doing. You ever gone to a wedding and decided, or uh, women, you go to a wedding and you put on the white dress? You, there's only one person that should be wearing a white dress at the wedding. Everyone else should be wearing a different dress. Why? Because we're all focusing on the bride, right? We should all be going, look, look to her. But many of us in our witness, sometimes we do this where. We, we just say, look at me. We forget to actually invite people to look to Jesus. He's the one that can redeem you. He's the one that can save you, not me. We're, we're not willing to be, um, like, really honest with our friends about our struggles. Because when we're honest about our struggles, then we can say, look to Jesus because he me, helps me in my struggles. Look at me in my unbelief because then you can trust in Jesus who's the real Savior and Redeemer and friend. I mean, John the Baptist is pretty clear, like the Lamb of God. I'm not the Lamb of God, and he's pretty clear about identifying Jesus with using cultural language that makes sense, the Lamb of God. He's not just saying, hey, there's Jesus. So I think there's a difference now as we talk to people about our belief and faith in Jesus to actually say, I follow Jesus. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus, not solely I'm a Christian and I'm a practicing evangelical or whatever it might be but say, I am a follower of Jesus. And and really making it clear, I have a personal relationship with Jesus and my participation in a service on Sunday mornings is simply part of helping me develop more of a relationship with Jesus. But we need to get to Jesus. Let's go, let's keep going. Verse 38, Jesus turned. (laughs) Notice even Jesus' approach to these new people that are following him, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, I think we can learn a lot from Jesus and his approach to evangelism in this particular situation. What's the first question he asked them? What are you seeking? What are you doing here? What do you want? That is a fantastic question to ask somebody about their life. What are you going for? What do you want? What are you seeking? What's the purpose of your life? What's the intention? And what's the, what's the reason behind your existence? What are you seeking? What do you want? Jesus begins with question. There's, a, there's a, a book out there. I haven't read it, but it's called Questioning Evangelism. It's not questioning the idea of evangelism. It's a f- style of evangelism called questioning using brilliant questions to help somebody on their journey of faith. And Jesus begins with a question. He doesn't begin, let me tell you the gospel. He asks them, what are you seeking? And what do they say back? Rabbi, they identify him as teacher. Some are, there's different perspectives. Have they actually identified him as Lord yet? Or have they identified him simply as like a cultural rabbi, a cultural teacher? They're clearly in a form of like, we respect you. Okay, so we respect you, Jesus. But they say, what do they say? They say a question back, where are you staying? They're maybe not ready to get to the deep theological questions yet, but they want to spend more time with him. And so what does Jesus say back to them? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th Hour, the, next, the next approach, after we introduce people to Jesus, is then actually just spend time with Jesus and discover who he is. Spend time with Jesus and discover who he is. Jesus says, come along for the journey. Once we invite and we introduce people to Jesus, we say, come on and like, let's explore your questions. Let's, let me hear your doubts. Be skeptical. I was skeptical. I'm still skeptical at times. Like, come along for the journey with me. Let's, let's have your questions answered as we just bask and spend time with Jesus. And they're maybe like, well, I'm not going to bask. And you're like, okay, I'll bask and I'll, you just ask your questions. But come spend time with Jesus. The 10th hour of the day was about 4 p.m. So they spend 4 p.m. for the rest of the day with Jesus. They just simply go and they're spending time with Jesus. Verse 40, the text continues. One of the two heard John speak and follow, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. So now we're getting further detail about one of these disciples, right? One of the disciples that was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, now is becoming a disciple of Jesus. One of the disciples, what is his name? It's Andrew. And who is he? Well, he's Simon Peter's brother. Interesting. Verse 41, he, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Notice what's happened in the life of Andrew now. At first, he's a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist points him to Jesus. He has questions. He goes and spends time with Jesus. Now, who is he identifying Jesus as? He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. It means he's the anointed one. He's the one that the prophet spoke about. I found him. And what does he do? He goes and invites his brother. Brother, I found Jesus. I found the Messiah. And so what does his brother do? Okay, (laughs) what does Andrew do? Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. I'll say it again. He brought him to Jesus. He said, I've found something, someone amazing. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get you to him. You don't know he's the Messiah. I know he's the Messiah. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get you to him. So he brought him To Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, Peter, as we'll find out later in some of the other Gospels, means rock. Jesus is, is looking through Peter at his character, at his identity, and he's also calling out who Peter is going to be. The type of person that Peter is called is going to be. And what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus knows and sees people better than we ever could. Jesus knows and sees people better than we ever could. And that is just something you have to believe as you're talking to other people about Jesus. Is that Jesus actually sees and knows your friends and neighbors and coworkers better than you ever could. And then he calls them from where they are and speaks life and truth over them. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. And in our process of walking with people and helping them discover who Jesus is, we have to believe that Jesus is better and that Jesus actually sees what's going on inside of somebody and trust that he will expose and call them and bring them to the place of actually submitting themselves to Jesus. But just trusting Jesus sees people better than we ever could and can. Let's keep going. Notice what happens next. The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now there's some question as far as who's the one that found Philip, because we're following the story. It might have been Andrew, it might have been Jesus. But Jesus eventually has Philip in front of him, and he says to Philip, follow me. Now a couple of things just to note about this is that if it is Andrew that has invited Philip, that probably... Andrew has talked to Jesus, now the rabbi that he is following, about Philip. And there's a great lesson here, that not only are we to talk to our friends about Jesus, we're also to talk to Jesus about our friends. Do you see that? We we not only want to talk to our friends about Jesus, we also want to talk to Jesus about our friends. This is the role of what some people call intercessory prayer, actually praying on behalf of our friends that they will actually come to a place of wanting to know and to receive Jesus. And so here is finally now Philip in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me. And that's when Jesus gives the invitation. Follow me. Come with me. Come along with me. Let's see what Philip does with it. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. You see that? So Andrew and Peter are the ones that were introduced to in the front half of the text. And so Philip knows Andrew and Peter. So once again, it's kind of like this friend-to-friend brother-to-brother pattern that we see come and and be with Jesus what does Philip do I'll notice what Philip does verse 45 Philip found Nathaniel whoa just so we're all familiar we're now given another new person right like think about all the people we're being introduced to here there's the two disciples come to Jesus Andrew's one of them what, is he, what, is, what does he do? Well, he goes and finds Simon Peter, says, come follow Jesus. Okay, then we're getting introduced to another person. Like, this text can feel a little bit confusing because we're just being introduced to so many different people. But they're all doing the same thing. Notice that, right? Like, there's different people, but they're all doing the same thing. They constantly, they're all wanting to introduce their friends and family to Jesus. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. So now Philip is certainly convinced, right, of who he's found. He takes a bit more of an intellectual approach with Nathaniel, which is maybe something to think about as far as who are the people we're talking to and what's maybe the approach. But he says, we found the one that Moses, the law and the prophets spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now that was a a proper introduction to a particular person at the time to speak of where they were from and the son, the physical Father of the person, the son of Joseph. Notice what Nathaniel responds, though. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he totally pushes aside the identification of who Jesus is as far as, hey, I found the one that the Moses, the law, and the prophets spoke about. Nathaniel's like, big deal. He's from Nazareth. Which tells us something about Nazareth, right? Nazareth is nowheresville. He's like, the one that Moses' the law and the prophet spoke about would not come from Nazareth. <laughs> nice try. I don't think you found him. Right? It, it gets into all these stereotypes that we have sometimes in our mind of like, yeah, that would never happen. You know, that person would never receive Jesus. They're such a hard-nosed atheist. Like, no, no, God would never like, no, not Nazareth. So it says something about Nazareth. But then it also says something about God. No, God would never call something out of Nazareth. Right? God would never change somebody from there. God would never make somebody of that place. That's too little of God to do. It's just interesting how these things play into our journeys, right? And it's also very honest of the text. Aren't you like, I'm just compelled and moved by that too, where the text is like, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, right? So you want to be convinced of Jesus? You'd say, He's from Jerusalem. Right? Here's the text. Like, no, he's from Nazareth. Nowheresville. <laughs> you know? So Philip said to him in response to this, can anything good come from Nazareth? Look what he does. He does what Jesus did earlier in the text. Come and see. <laughs> like that, that, sorry, I'm just kind of putting my own like, interpretations on this. But it's kind of funny because Philip is convinced. Right? He knows who Jesus is at this point. And he's like, come and see. Come on. Come on. You'll see who I'm talking about. Mm. You know, it's exciting. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It's kind of the same point we saw earlier, that Jesus knows and sees people better than we ever could. And in this moment, Jesus speaks a word about Nathanael's character. He says, here's somebody that's coming. They're honestly asking questions. They don't have false motives. They're just coming to ask the questions, to just simply come and see. And Nathaniel, notice what, how he responds. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? So he senses that Jesus actually knows something about him that maybe others don't. And Jesus done, has done that work. Right? Here is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel says, whoa, you know who I am. Those of us who are followers of Jesus can maybe think of situations in our relationships with God through Christ in which he spoke over us very clearly something about ourselves and we were like, whoa, you know me better than anybody else knows me. And that's what's happening here in the text. So Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now this is a word of just straight up supernatural knowledge. A divine word of, from the Holy Spirit to Jesus in this moment about Nathanael. And look at the response of Nathanael. Remember how Nathanael started. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Look at his, look at his response now, verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He's been changed. You know, some that we witness to and share Jesus with will be won by words. They'll be won by a bit more of an apologetic, of helping somebody understand who the historical Jesus is, the things that he claimed about himself, what he did, his resurrection. Questions of why there is a God that exists, why Jesus died, like they will be won by words. Some people are won by works. They see a lot of good fruit coming from somebody's life and they're like, they take pause and they say, what's that all about? But some people are won by wonders. And this is one of those situations in this text, a bit of wonder, where there's like, whoa, that is like totally impossible. How would he know that? And the Spirit of God brings an opening to Nathaniel now where he says, You truly are the Son of God. You truly are the King of Israel. What Philip said about you is true. So words, works, and wonders. How does Jesus answer him? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You know, it's great to be firsthand witness to the divine or to a supernatural experience, but what Jesus is encouraging Nathanael with here is to say, listen, that's great that you believe in me because of that, but you're going to see more. And you're going to need to see more in order for your experience with me to go deeper, to a deeper level. And what many people believe Jesus is now also referring to is he's looking ahead into knowing what his life will entail and where his life will eventually lead, which is his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And he's saying, you are going to see greater things than the fact that I simply said that I saw you under a fig tree. More is going to come of this. And then Jesus goes on and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, every time you see that word, truly, truly, I'd encourage you to circle it. Jesus is making profound statements when he says, truly, truly. He's like, thus is, says the Lord. It's that sort of thing. Hear this, however. And he says, you will see. And this is to go plural beyond Nathanael. And what does he say? He says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Many believe this is a reference back in the Old Testament to Genesis 28. If you're not familiar with that, I'd encourage you, you know, maybe later today or sometime this week going back there. And it's Jacob having a dream of seeing angels descending up and down a ladder to heaven. And what Jesus is now providing is the fulfillment of that vision and that dream to say, I am now the one that is providing an opening and opening a door to heaven for the rest of humanity. I mean, it's significant to think about what Jesus is actually saying here to Nathanael and then what he's saying to the rest of us. I am the one who opens heaven for you. I need to be the one that opens heaven for you. You cannot open heaven yourself. I must be the one that opens heaven for you. Only through me may you be saved. Only through me may you have a personal relationship with Yahweh, with God himself. And I am making that way. Now, a few things from this text that, as we think about application, is we see in this text this ongoing circular theme and this rhythm. And the first is an invitation and an introduction. As we think about our friends, as we think about our coworkers, there is the come and see. And as we said, this is building relationships built on love and on trust. Many of us, if we're honest, we respond to the endorsements of our friends because we know that they love and care for us and we trust their opinion. So we invite, we introduce, but then secondly, we spend time with Jesus discovering who you is. We ask people questions, what are you seeking? Even for ourselves sometimes this, we can still be in this process of what am what am I seeking? We answer questions like who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? We answer questions of like what is prayer? What is the Bible? Who is the Holy Spirit? And then finally, we then submit and worship Jesus. As we become convinced of who Jesus is as we've spent time with them, we then submit and worship Jesus. And then, as we see in the text, the cycle then repeats of then you go and find somebody else that you invite and introduce to Jesus, spend time with Jesus, submit and worship Jesus. Oh, invite, introduce. This is the way of discipleship. This is the way of how we share Jesus with other people. And some of that spending time and introducing can happen in the context of a gathered on a Sunday morning. Most often than not, the beginning stages are in our homes. You, You know this, that we at Church of the City are really passionate about seeing everyday disciples of Jesus follow Jesus where they live, where you live, where you work, where you learn and where you play, and that we would create environments of our homes where people can come and not just spend time with us to be introduced further to us, but ultimately so that they would spend time with us so that then we can invite and introduce them to Jesus. Many of you are familiar. um, Our missional community has been running the Alpha Course for friends. So these were people that we said, hey, we've spent time with you. We've built a relationship with you. Come and spend time discovering Jesus. And we're going to answer some of the biggest questions of life. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? What is prayer? What is the Bible? Who is the Holy Spirit? We had a Holy Spirit weekend day yesterday from 9 to 3 where we were taught about who the Holy Spirit is and how to have a relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This really does, what Alpha does is it puts on the front burner really the questions that many of us want to get to but we don't know how to get to. And Alpha is a brilliant resource. As I heard someone say, they said Alpha is one of the only evangelistic tools where the person being evangelized actually enjoys the process. Does that make sense? Where you're like, I've got to figure out how to share the gospel with someone. Usually it's kind of fumbled and we don't know necessarily how to do it. Alpha is one of the only tools and resources where the people that are being evangelized actually enjoy the process because you create a culture of question, of asking, and learning. And we're seeing God. I was just like... One of the reasons I was being overwhelmed, it was just, I, I will exalt. Because I'm thinking, like, man, like, how much of times in my life, if I, like, tried to exalt myself, which has actually prevented people from seeing Jesus, man, I just need to get out of the way so I can exalt Jesus, point people to him. Oh, Jesus, help me do that more. So they'll be overwhelmed. And I was thinking about the experience of some of our friends yesterday through this Alpha Holy Spirit weekend. I'm like, man, like, that was amazing. God, you're amazing. Overwhelm me with your love so that people can experience you, not me, you. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe this morning, is do you need to believe the gospel again? That that God is all-powerful, that Jesus is great, that he saves us, that you can't save yourself, that only Jesus saves you. Do you need to confess that, Jesus, I've made too much of myself. I've thought too little of you. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your reconciliation that I can be in a relationship with you now and help me point people to you and introduce people to you. And that I would be like Philip who brought his brother, that I'd be willing to go to the great lengths of bringing people to you. That might be, like I know a friend and he was bringing friends here on Sunday mornings, but he was doing this. He was saying, hey, would you come with me on Sunday morning and I'll take you out for lunch afterwards. So not only were they getting the service, but they were like, I'm paying for your lunch after too. Like, and maybe that was the only way that he could actually get them here. It was like, I'll, I'll take you for lunch. But I want you to experience Jesus. Like, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. So we make much of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're in that journey of exploration. Welcome to the journey. We're all journeying. We want skeptics to be here. We want atheists, agnostics. We want people of other faith groups just to come and spend time with Jesus. Because Jesus gets people to the place of, like, totally, like, yes, I submit to you. Because he sees through people. We can't do that. I cannot see into the heart of my neighbors. Only Jesus can do that. And do I trust Him in that process? Do I trust Him? I wanna trust Him. I wanna believe that He's great. I wanna think more highly of Him. I wanna see people touched with the good news of Jesus. I hope you want the same. This morning we're gonna take communion. And this is, I believe, just really beautiful. As we come to the bread, as we come to the cup, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We're reminded of what he has done and what we don't need to do. So many of us are bogged down and we feel the weight. And I would just encourage you this morning to come to Jesus, be reminded yet again of who he is. And if you're someone who said, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I'm not a follower of Jesus, maybe today is the day where you commit to following Jesus and saying, I want to learn from you. I want you to be my rabbi. I want to trust you. I want to believe that you have opened heaven for me. And you would maybe make that decision and then for the first time today, participate with our church family and take communion for the first time. After communion We will have people that would love to pray with you. And some of us are familiar. We usually do prayer at the front, but we've actually moved it to the back of our space here. And so in the back corner here, there's a curtains are open and there's some chairs back there. And there will be people there that would love to join with you and pray with you to encourage you, to support you, to hear what God has been speaking to you this morning and maybe then how he would call you to act. And so let's pray and thank Jesus for his sacrifice. So God, we thank you for this morning. And God, what is so clear in the text today is that each of those that introduced others to you, Andrew, Philip, God, each of them were excited about who they'd found. And God, if many of us are honest in this room, we've lost our excitement. We've lost our excitement about who you are and of what you've done for us. And so we don't want to talk to you about other people. Or maybe, God, for some of us, we we came to you. Being told that a relationship with you was impactful, meaningful, and enjoyable, but it hasn't been that. And so I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to life again. And God, I pray if there are any of us in this room that do not know you. Here in the text of John, repeatedly, John indicates that Jesus is the one that truly brings life, he is the well. He is where true sustenance and satisfaction and joy can be found. So I pray that 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 would be the place, God, where those of us who don't know you would come to and go. And those of us that do confess to know you, that we would go again today. So we take communion now, thankful for what you've done. And excited for what you promise that you are doing and will do in the future. Amen.